Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tate. Hello everyone, welcome back to Talk Dizzy to Me. I'm Dr. Abby Ross, vestibular physical therapist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Danielle Tate, also a vestibular physical therapist. Today, we're going to be discussing something very near and dear to my heart. I'm so excited to talk about this anytime, anyplace, anywhere. It's telehealth. I'm really excited to talk about this too, because I'll be honest, when we met in that bar in DC and you told me that you were starting this telehealth for vestibular patients, the first thing that ran through my mind was, you can't do that. You couldn't possibly do telehealth for vestibular patients. You know, I I was um, (laughs) trained... I was trained with putting my hands on patients and using infrared goggles and being there to support them. If when they were having vertigo, like I was like, there's no way we can do this over the computer. Like I completely kind of, you know, um, admittedly kind of put it off initially. And then, you know, you and I stayed in touch over time and then COVID happened. And now all of a sudden everything was making the switch to telehealth and you and I got talking more and I really was interested in to see like what you were doing and how things were progressing, especially since you had a couple of years under your belt now with Balancing Act Rehab. So once you and I connected and decided like we were going to kind of go through how to do this, I was dumbfounded. Like you were right on a lot of what we can do with these vestibular patients. So I really think it should be covered because I guarantee you that there are a lot of vestibular specialists out there who are thinking the same exact thing that I thought. Like how could you possibly do a vestibular exam or work with vestibular patients via telehealth or video conferencing. So first, why don't you give us a little bit of a definition of what makes uh, telehealth telehealth? So telehealth is very simply physical therapy first, telehealth second. And that definition can be taken a million different ways. But basically what I'm saying is that what we provide in person, vestibular physical therapy, is the same thing we're going to provide over telehealth. Telehealth, though, is simply a platform. It's a different delivery mode. Instead of a patient being right in front of my face where I can touch him or her, this patient is right in front of my face through a screen. So telehealth is the delivery of care through some sort of medium. For example, um, you know, you use a platform that's HIPAA compliant, or at least that's what we do. I think COVID laws have relaxed that a little bit now, but you'd use a platform through your smartphone or through your laptop or through your desktop with a webcam so that your therapist such as myself or Danny can see you and examine you and speak to you through the camera. And I think that's first telehealth second. And I think that's what threw me off because, you know, PT is very hands-on, you know, before the world kind of changed with this pandemic, there wasn't a lot of telehealth being done, or at least it wasn't in the mainstream focus. So, you know, we go through PT school and they always tell you, you got to get your hands on the patient. But is that really true? Do we have to put our hands on patients to be able to help them? Yeah, I can remember in my physical therapy school days, I had one professor who would always, always, always always, always say, we are PTs and we touch, okay? He's right. We are a hands-on profession for the most part, but, and I may be a little biased, but in the vestibular therapy world, so much of what we learn about a patient is verbal. We hear their story, and from their story, we can really kind of make our clinical clinical decisions and, and educate the patient on what's happening, why it's happening, and make a plan of care really on their story alone. Do our exam techniques help? Of course they help. But a lot of the exam techniques you can actually do via video. You might just have to be a little creative with it. You might have to implement some extra safety measures because some of our exam techniques may elicit a fall or loss of balance. Uh, But for the most part, I mean, vestibular therapy to me is perfect for telehealth because it's so much about education it's so much about the patient's history, and you can do both of those things through your phone. Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. Look at our last episode. We kind of hit home over and over again that if you just listen to the patient, they're most likely going to give you a really good idea of what's going on. If you just listen, they'll tell you exactly what's going on. 
So it makes a lot of sense that this would work. If you listen to that patient, you do a good history, you would have an idea of what's going on enough where you can do some tests through teleconferencing to be able to figure this out and help them and at least get them some help. Um, so I think it's it's something that we immediately think, no, that can't happen. But when, really when you break it down, which is something that you did a great job of, of with me when I w- was trying to get into this, that it made a lot of sense. And it actually kind of changed a little bit how I practiced in the clinic because it made me realize I didn't have to overload my patient with a ton of tests. If I had a good idea of what was going on, it could reinforce it with just a few things. So I, I do have to thank you for that. You've cut down my eval time a little bit <laughs> just by learning how to do telehealth for vestibular therapy. So, you know, you started balancing after rehab back in 2018, I believe. Why don't you give us a little bit more of a background on that and kind of just introduce us to what you've created over the years? Sure. Uh telehealth or balancing act rehab really grew in my mind for probably a good, I don't know, two years before I actually started it. And the reason was because as I was working in the clinic, vestibular clinics can be difficult to come by, or you might go to a vestibular clinic and they might advertise that they treat vertigo, dizziness, imbalance, whatever your symptoms are, but come to find out Maybe they don't have the training that's actually necessary. Maybe they don't understand the more complex vestibular disorders, but they do understand understand the uh, more basic, who knows? The epi maneuver. (laughs) What's that? Basically the epi maneuver. Yeah, maybe that's all they know, but they do advertise that they treat vertigo. Well, the epi maneuver does not treat all vertigo. We know that. So um, the idea was kind of brewing in my head because I had patients coming to see me from various states flying even to come to come see a vestibular therapist in a specialty clinic. And I thought to myself, there has got to be an easier way for these poor people who are symptomatic, flying hours, then dealing with New York City traffic to get into the clinic. That was kind of step number one that got my mind wondering what else can we do for these patients? And then two was I had moved on from the clinic that I was working at and um, an old colleague had reached out to me about a friend or family member of hers and said, you know, this person had a concussion. She does not have any access to care where she is. Can you please, please just see her? I don't care how you do it, what you do, what you charge, if you charge, doesn't matter. I just need to get this loved one help. So of course I, I did. And, um, I realized this was the first time that I had treated completely virtually. We were not within the same city and I realized how effective it could be because within a few sessions, she was already making tremendous progress. And actually even just in the first session, having someone to listen to her and her symptoms and understand them and empathize with her she was in a whole different place by the end of our initial eval because she had found someone who, who understood, I guess really is what it boils down to. Yeah, that's definitely the first step. And, you know, I'll admit uh, I get a lot of friends and family or um, friends of friends and family in New York um, up where I have a lot of my, uh, my home base, my family, they will reach out and say, what, you know, someone, so-and-so is dizzy. What should they do? Or where should they go? Or can you talk to them and just talk them down from the ledge? And, you realize I've been kind of doing telehealth all along just for free and helping out people who are suffering that just needed to have an idea of what was going on or what they should do. So we we might be all a little akin to that a little bit and um, have probably have a little bit of, of uh, experience virtually working with friends and family, just trying to give them advice because they know that you know what you're talking about. So that's right. a very interesting point to make. And that actually reminds me, I didn't even put two and two together that this was basically telehealth, but my dad has had recurrent episodes of BPPV and I didn't, I didn't even video with him at the time. I just talked him through things over the phone and we successfully treated horizontal canal physis through the phone. And I didn't, again, I didn't put two and two together until right now that I was actually treating him via telehealth at the time, pre-balancing act rehab, but you're right. I mean, most therapists probably have stories where family members or friends are calling them for some advice. They're not two miles down the road and going over going over things through the phone or through FaceTime or whatever with the family or friend. Um, you know, it happens. 
and healthy. Yeah. I mean, that kind of leads into one of the first things that popped into my mind when I was thinking about telehealth when we were talking in that, in that tequila bar in DC um, <laughs> was how the heck do you observe nystagmus? Because, you know, there's a lot of complicated cases where it's important to watch the nystagmus and watch it through treatment or watch it through certain tests. But really, we don't have to necessarily see that all the time. Isn't that right? Yeah. Well, surprisingly, I think when you start to treat via telehealth, you realize that you can do a lot of what you do in the clinic, even through video. Again, it's physical therapy first, telehealth second. So whether it's having a family member assist you with some tests or just assist with camera holding, when you're taking a patient through BPPV testing, explaining to them what you're looking for, you need to see their eyes. So they are going to hold the phone in front of their face in each test position you can really see, you can see the nystagmus. I've had um, nystagmus in a very acute patient who had third degree right beating nystagmus, oh, wow. likely a left-sided hypofunction just in, you know, through, through the camera, through her phone, I could see that. And I've also had countless patients with BPPV. That's probably the most common diagnosis that I've seen via telehealth. Um, but countless patients with nystagmus during BPPV who I can I can see just through the phone. Now, yeah. typically in the clinic, of course, we if we have access to infrared goggles, we would use infrared goggles to assess for BPPV and assess gaze holding nystagmus. But in reality, I will admit I actually did used to be a goggle snob. I needed goggles no matter what for every single eval. If I didn't have room with the goggles, I was not a happy camper. <laughs> <laughs> but I realized now that goggles really, do they help? Do they make us feel better? Yes, 100%. But when you're seeing a patient via telehealth, you don't have goggles, you can mm -hmm. still help this patient. And you think about it even in this way too. Let's say the patient has BPPV or all their story, you're suspecting BPPV, room spinning vertigo every time you sit up, dissipates in under a minute, blah, 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 right? So let's say I do test this patient in bilateral Dix Hall pike and roll test positions, and I don't see any nystagmus. I don't see it. It's not there. But this patient tells me in this particular position, she feels horrible, just as I would in clinic, if I had the same type of presentation, I'm still going to go through the necessary maneuver to, to assist with the otoconia moving back to where they belong, whether I see the nystagmus or not. At least that's what I would do in clinic. What about you? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, we were right before we started recording when I were actually talking about this, because um, this is actually something that I've been seeing a lot more recently noticing that there are patients who are significantly more sensitive to changes in their vestibular system, or they've always been super sensitive to um, motion just in general, like getting car sick and whatnot. And it's it's funny to see them in the clinic with their initial complaints of positional vertigo. It, it sounds like BPV, it smells like BPV, you know, it acts like BPV, but we just can't quite see the nystagmus. We get so hooked into those goggles and having to verify, um, you know, what we're seeing. But really, in reality, we'll, we'll get a negative exam initially, and then they'll come back a week or two later, and their symptoms are significantly worse. But now we're seeing nystagmus, but it's still presented the same way with how they presented with their subjective complaints of being vertiginous in certain positions, very specific to um, BPMV. So, I mean, you're right. You don't necessarily have to see it, but if the patient's symptomatic in certain positions, we're still going to treat them for the possibility of BPMV that's just not eliciting a response yet. Right. Um, I actually had a telehealth patient. She was supposed to be an in-clinic initial eval, and her husband became violently ill this that morning, mm -hmm. um, something unrelated. He was just sick to his stomach, and she couldn't leave him, but she was suffering from positional vertigo, and she's had BPV in the past, and she's like, can you just talk to me over the computer, please? So we did a telehealth visit, and she didn't have a phone. She only had her computer, so she was actually in her bedroom. It couldn't have been more perfect. She had her bed in front of the computer, and... 
I had her sit on the on the bed and we did some Dick's Hall Pikes. I told her how to position the pillows and how to turn her head and if she was doing the positioning correct. And sure enough, you know, left Dick's Hall Pike was negative, but we got her into the right Dick's Hall Pike and she's like, oh, I'm spinning or the room is moving. It's like, okay, that's a pretty good response. So without having to see the nystagmus, I'm like, okay, we're going to treat this. We're going to see if this helps, if this works. And you can walk them through a maneuver and voila, she was fixed. All was great. She didn't have to really suffer after that. She could take care of her husband the rest of the day. So you know, you don't necessarily have to observe nystagmus. Is it is it nice to be able to have a pair of infrared goggles, especially for a super complicated, um, elusive patient? Yes. But a lot of times it sounds like you can get through an evaluation without seeing nystagmus up close and personal. Um, I do want to mention when it came to trying to figure out how to get patients to learn how to use their phone, there was a YouTube video that Kathleen Strauss had put together for her um, telehealth patients that she started seeing. And she put a little um, video together that she would send out before their initial eval on how to position their phone, what she's looking for, how to hold it up to their eye to make sure that they're getting a good, clear, crisp um, uh, uh, video of their eye movements. So it is doable with the right technology and with the right um, education. And you can still see nystagmus at home even without infrared goggles. So I, I think that was really cool and a big misconception that I definitely just leapt to thinking like, oh, they're, they're going to miss something. You can't see nystagmus through a computer. But in reality, it's, it might not necessarily be something you have to see, which I think is really cool. I will say that um, for the initial eval, or if I know I'm going to be assessing for BPPV, I'll encourage the use of a phone just because it's a little bit more mobile when I'm taking them through different positions. A laptop is a bit more cumbersome and harder to hold as you're going through these positions. And I'll also recommend if it's possible, if there's a family member, a child, someone that can hold a phone and I can instruct on where I want that person to hold the phone so that I can see what I need to see. That's helpful. That is good. Now, do you feel like you miss out on anything with telehealth? You feel like in comparison to being a hands-on clinician in a clinic with goggles to now being a telehealth vestibular clinician, do you feel like you miss out on anything or concerned about missing anything? Sure, there are some you know, exam techniques that you cannot physically do. For example, head impulse test. Head impulse test requires your hands to be on the patient's head. Um, but in, the rea in reality, if I have a positive head impulse test, does it look good on paper? Am I happy that I have another affirming finding that states that this patient likely has a hypofunction on one side? Sure. But really, I'm treating the patient's symptoms. I'm not treating this patient's diagnosis when it comes to vestibular disorders. I'm treating the patient's symptoms. Depending on what diagnosis I'm suspecting, I might also be providing other strategies for treatment, whether it's dietary changes or stress management techniques, whatever it may be. But I'm not treating this patient's specific diagnosis per se, especially because you know, vestibular disorders, they're not curable conditions. So we're really managing the patient's symptoms. So back to the question, are there exam techniques that, you know, I miss or do I feel like I'm missing out on anything? Sure, there are things that I would like to check off on my eval box. You know, I did this, I did this, I did this, negative, negative, positive, whatever it may be. But overall, I have not felt like I'm doing any patient a disservice by missing something or leaving an exam technique out. I think that my mentality has really changed from being in person to now being through telehealth because I've realized I can get the same outcomes with patients via video conferencing that I could in person, even without the head impulse test or without a standard standardized functional gait assessment um, or without a true gait speed, you know, all things that I would make sure I hit in every eval I'm not doing those things because I can't necessarily do them over telehealth, at least the standardized versions. Now, will I still watch a patient walk? Of course, that gives me a lot of information. Will I do aspects of an FGA, functional gait assessment, to see where this patient has limitations or difficulties? 
Of course. Will I ask about different items on the FGA? Are you know, is stepping over obstacles a problem? Is um, narrow spaces a problem? Dimly lit environments a problem? So you're, I'm constantly asking those same types of questions. I just might might not be observing in the same way I would in person. Does that make yeah. sense? Oh, it makes, yeah, it makes total sense because you can still see how a person functions. Um, and it's kind of unique because you can pretty much see them how they function in their own home as well, which is a unique aspect that we miss in the clinic. Um, say that that is actually ideal, right? We want to see this patient in their element, in their home environment. We want to see what they, you know, if, if they are describing symptoms when they roll onto their right side, I want to see this patient roll onto her right side in her bed which she experiences every night. I can now visualize this and assist her with this. I can see what type of uh, furniture she has around. I can assess the house for fall risk. Does she have throw rugs, for example, that I might encourage her to pick up um, or at least, you know, secure down to the floor real well. So yeah, I think that's actually a benefit of telehealth is that it's conducted within the patient's home. Absolutely. Now, with telehealth and with the experience that you've had this far, you know, what are some of the common diagnoses that you see in this patient population? Because obviously telehealth isn't for everybody, no. but it does include a big group of people that could benefit from vestibular therapy. So, you know, what are some of the things that you're seeing most of? I would say the most common thing I see would be BPPV. I, I think that's probably most common, but not far behind that is more chronic dizziness, more 3PD type patients, um, especially patients who have exhausted other options and uh, need to see or are desiring to see someone who specializes just in vestibular care. I would say those are the pretty much the two main ones. I have seen more acute patients, acute neuritis, for example, um, vestibular migraine, but the vestibular, the patients with vestibular migraine are also kind of in that category where they've exhausted other options and really want someone who has a good grasp on at least the vestibular rehab portion of their care. Yeah. So, so for some of those therapists out there that are a little skeptical saying, well, what about that patient with all the CNS symptoms? You know, if somebody has a lot of central issues, they're likely not Googling how to get together with a vestibular therapist online. They are likely going to their doctor, going to a hospital, seeking emergent care. And in that case, they're going to go through the traditional sense of seeing the, the specialist that can get them the help that they need. So it makes a lot of sense that, you know, via telehealth, these are people who are um, have exhausted their options who have been dealing with this for a while that probably have some layers of issues that have kind of compounded over the time that they've been symptomatic. And now they're trying to, they're trying to figure out things on their own, which we see a lot with this patient population. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's unfortunate that there's just not a lot of people who specialize in this and especially in an area that has limited resources or access to, to specialists, they're going to try to find anything that they can to feel better because feeling that way is just miserable and it really decreases the quality of life. So it makes sense that you're seeing beep and BV, you're seeing migraine, you're seeing these patients that have just chronic dizziness that are trying to find something to help their symptoms. And in most cases, we can absolutely help that with telehealth, which I just, I think is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, with that being said, you know, one of the more difficult things I think to treat because it can be uh, something that's more acute or has a more acute onset would be beep and BV. So have you had any difficulty treating patients with um, atypical beep and BV or different types of beep and BV that might not seem to react as normally as like a right posterior canal issue? You know, I'm just trying to think about patients that I've seen. And I think for the most part, everyone has had pretty, what we would call straightforward BPPV, you know, one canal successfully treated with one maneuver, or maybe you might try a second maneuver if that first one didn't work quite as well as you hoped. Um, there is one patient though, who has had multi-canal BPPV. And I will say that was a little tricky to treat via telehealth because I probably was missing, missing some nystagmus um, in my assessment. But just like in clinic, you know, what I did was I treated what I saw. 
So I treated one canal first and then realized, oh, okay, well, actually this other canal is involved too. Um, and then treated the second canal and that patient has been vertigo free since, but it did take a little bit longer for me to identify that this was uh, multi-canal involvement versus just your straightforward posterior canal thiasis. Yeah, but you were still able to treat it. You were still able to get the patient help and they got to be safe and happy in the comfort of their own home, which I think is a lot. <laughs> That's a really great thing to have. I had a patient today actually come in who had um, a more atypical form of BPV and she drove herself and she deeply regretted that. Um, she ended up having to wait you know, a pretty long time for things to settle down once we did kind of get things figured out and addressed. Um, and somebody like that, I would imagine would have been very difficult via telehealth, but at the same time, the approach that we ended up taking was totally doable via telehealth and probably would have ended up at that point anyways. Um, so I think that, that, you know, even if it's an atypical or difficult type of beef and BV, you can still get them help. You can still figure things out and really help the patient start to feel better. Um, have you had any interesting cases that you want to share that you've seen via telehealth? Well, truly, I feel pretty much every patient with vestibular disorder is interesting. Well, everyone's different, right? Everyone is different. And that's what makes the day so fun and exciting is, you know, this patient could have the same exact diagnosis as the last patient, but there's some something that's different, something you can't do or they're not ready for or whatever. Every patient is different. Yeah. So when I think about all the cases I've seen, one woman actually comes to mind. Um, when we think about BPPV, we think about typically an older adult population, but what she was describing to me really sounded like BPPV. She said when she rolled to her right, she would have room spinning vertigo, but she also had these other symptoms that she was telling me about. And I don't know if I mentioned this, but she was in her 20s. So to me, BPPV was not initially on on my in my forefront, right? Not the top of the list. No, not the top of the list. But she was describing crippling anxiety. Um, she was having terrible nightmares. And to the point where she was really not sleeping well at all, if at all, uh, she was having TMJ symptoms. I'm sure she was really clenching and, and um, guarding in her sleep. And she had various diagnostic tests. She had an MRI that was negative. She had a VNG that was negative. She had a sleep study. Nothing was found with that. She started seeing a psychotherapist and that seemed to help some with her anxiety, but certainly didn't do the, the entire trick. So I saw her at eval and I could not find anything. And I thought, oh, this poor woman, all I want to do is elicit her symptoms. So I know how to help her. I know I can help her. I just need to see what's going on. So that first day I, I said to her, you know, we didn't elicit any of the symptoms that you're describing. I believe you, of course I believe you, but we didn't bring anything on. So let's do a short course of care. I just want to make sure you're comfortable with moving again because she was super guarded and again, super anxious. Um, so, you know, I just wanted to get her freely moving again so she could actually enjoy life, go take her dog for a walk, for example. Well, that night, um, at about 2 a.m., I think it was, <laughs> getting back-to-back -back phone calls. And I thought, oh, man, 2 a.m., I should really answer this, right? <laughs> so I ended up speaking with a patient. We decided to schedule for the next morning. And sure enough, the next morning when I reassessed her for BPPV, it was clear as day. She had right posterior canal thiasis. We successfully treated it. Even once, though, the BPPV was in remission, she was still pretty anxious about movement. So we did spend a few more sessions just habituating her to movement, getting her comfortable and confident again moving. I mean, again, this this was a woman in her 20s who was moving around like she was so guarded. She was not doing anything because she was just so ter terrified of um, bringing on her symptoms. Yeah. I mean, it's actually becoming a lot more common now to introduce habituation into part of this plan of care, even just for a straightforward BPPV case, because we do end up with those patients who are very type A, very anxious, very guarded. They don't want to move. 
And that can really inhibit their recovery from something like treating beep and BB. And that's where we start to get into the territory of the 3PD issue. We don't want to get into, you know, complicating factors with including that into the mix as well. Um, so that's actually, that's really interesting, you know, especially for a woman in her 20s, you would never think beep and BB being at the top of the list. Um, but it's, it's really great that you were able to be there for her and be a good resource for her to be able to tap into, um, to kind of figure all of that out. So I think that that's really great. Yeah. Uh, Being a a successful story, which was rewarding for me, of course, and I'm sure she was happy. And this is actually a good segue to kind of talk about the benefits of telehealth, because yes, it might seem a little bit at first that it might be difficult and may not be as comprehensive as, as we would like it to be, but there's a lot of things that it can do for patients um, and even clinicians that are very favorable that you really can't get um, in the clinic itself. So why don't we talk about a couple of those things? Sure, so let's start maybe from the clinician standpoint. Um, I wanna actually, lead this off by saying, you know, two years ago, even most clinics, I knew of literally one actually was providing telehealth services. Most clinics, whether it was a vestibular clinic or, you know, ortho, neuro, whatever type of clinic, they were not providing telehealth services. Of course, then a pandemic hit and even if they didn't believe in telehealth before, well, you bet your bottom dollar they started believing in it now because people weren't coming through their door and um, finances were dropping, right? Mm -hmm. So that I think is just an interesting part of telehealth is that a lot of people were not on board with telehealth initially. I mean, you even admitted it to admitted to it somewhat that how can you provide quality care via video? But push came to shove and COVID struck and telehealth was the only way for a while. Um, I think the benefits, benefits of telehealth have really shown. And one such benefit for the clinician is the, the ability to broaden your reach, especially if you're a specialty clinician like vestibular or lymphedema or women's health even. Um, which you would also think hands-on, right? But I'm sure there are aspects of both of those areas that you can treat and really empower the patient to take their health care into their own hands. So from a clinician standpoint, you're broadening your reach. You're able to reach more patients outside of just your, your little radius outside of the clinic. You're able to work from home. Mm. Work from home is hard sometimes. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> It's hard. You, I do miss the, the camaraderie of the office life, right? You walk in, you say good morning to 20 people. You have clinical discussions. You can still have clinical discussions. Danny and I have clinical discussions pretty much every day, all day. But, Mm -hmm. you know, that work from home is great in that it's flexible. You can make your own hours. You can be professional from the top, the, <laughs> the waist up. you can have pajama bottoms on your bottom and no one would ever know. Um, so that part is really great. The thing that I like the most, and this is a benefit for both the clinician and the patient though, and I just mentioned it briefly was the way that it empowers the patient, especially in the vestibular world, because we rely so much on patients to do their homework because vestibular rehab is so much about repetition. And I always tell my people, if if you're coming to me once a week, let's say, you are not going to get better. Well, you might, but <laughs> chances are your recovery is going to be slower if you only come to me once a week and that's all you do. Yeah. It's like, it's like dieting. You can't diet once a week and expect to lose weight. You know, it's the same thing with physical therapy. You come into the clinic and we show you what you need to do. We educate you. We put you on the right path, but it's up to the consistency of the patient to adhere to what they're supposed to do in order to get the results that they desire. So, you know, even, you know, some, a lot of the vestibular protocols are, you know, one time a week for six weeks, assuming the patient is doing their homework. So I do think you're absolutely right. You put a lot more emphasis on the patient following through with what they need to do. And 
from the start, you're educating the patient on how to do their exercises or how to do the maneuvers because they have to do it themselves from the get-go. And they can do it in the comfort of their own home and they can learn to do it on their, like if they have to do a a candle and three positioning maneuver, they can do that right on their bed and learn how to do that in real time in their own home. So if they ever have a recurrence or need to do that again in the future, they feel a lot more comfortable than trying to translate what they learn in the clinic to what they learn to uh, how to perform it in their home. So you're absolutely right when it comes to that. Um, And everything else you mentioned too. I mean, it would be great to be able to treat patients in my pajama bottoms. I'm not going (laughs) to (laughs) lie. Yeah. The empowering part is just, I mean, that's the one that sticks out to me the most. And from a patient perspective, I would say that having access to whether it's a specialty clinic or a clinician or Um, just being able to have access to care, period, especially during a pandemic is key. I actually had a patient who was seeing a a clinician in person and he felt that he was making some progress and was happy with the way things are going. Well, COVID hit and he never heard another word. I don't think that's the norm, but you know, chaos, chaos struck. And I'm, I'm sure it wasn't on purpose that they just basically abandoned this patient, but that's pretty much what happened. They closed their doors and that was it. Um, So he ended up coming to me and even he will admit he was skeptical at first because he was used to in-person care, but he'll say by the second appointment, he felt so comfortable and really realized that the care was the same, if not, if not even a little bit better, because like I said, the healthcare now was in his own hands. Mm-hmm. not relying on um, going to a session, you know, once a week, this was, this was now in his, in his power. He had the ability to do the exercises on his own. And we showed him that from day one. I always tell my patients too, I will give you the toolbox and all the tools in it. It is your yeah. job to use them. Well, even just the idea of access. So think about more rural parts of the country that aren't close to a big city or a learning institution or somewhere that might have someone who specializes in this, it would be huge to be able to get in touch with a vestibular specialist. If you go to vestibular.org, they have a provider directory. And it's interesting where I am in Hilton Head, South Carolina, we have a lot of people who snowbird. So Mm -hmm. they'll spend their winters down here and then they'll go back north for the summer. So if they've been getting treatment or they've been having recurrences of things, I have to try to find somebody in their area that can also provide them with care if they need it or to continue their care. And it baffles me sometimes that some of the closest clinics on this provider directory are maybe an hour, hour and a half away and something not feasible for this patient. Um, So having telehealth services can be a really great way to increase access to people, you know, statewide, countrywide to have access to this type of care that might not be um, available where they live. And we know the prevalence of vestibular dysfunction is is very, very high, especially in our older population. The older we get, the higher the prevalence becomes. So that's a lot of people who could be benefiting from services that just aren't getting those services because of where they live. So that definitely drops those borders, drops those barriers for access to care and kind of opens up that availability to patients, which I think is really great. And they don't have to drive. If you've got somebody who's so dizzy and they don't have transportation and they can't rely on anybody, the fact that they can just pull up their, their app on their phone or their computer is a huge, huge thing for them, especially if they're anxious about leaving their home. So now we've decreased the anxiety. They get to be in their own home. They don't have to go anywhere and be symptomatic and they can just be treated and hopefully feel a little bit better, which I think is a really, really great thing from the dizzy patient perspective. For sure. That does lead me into a challenge though. And that is, yes, this patient no longer has to commute. This patient no longer has to rely on a family member to assist them to their appointments and home from their appointments when they're symptomatic. However, this patient does need to know how to use a smartphone or a laptop or an iPad or whatever device they're using. And they also need to know how to connect to the internet. <laughs> I will say there have been some in the in the uh, little bit of vestibular telehealth that I've been getting into thanks to you um, and my current position at my clinic, which, since we've introduced telehealth into our, our means of, of continuing to make money. 
there have been a couple of times that have been very frustrating on trying to get the spouse to hold the phone the right way or teach them how yes. to turn the camera around or the fact that we might lose internet connection halfway through and they have no idea what's going on or how to log back in because the person that helped them get set up is no longer there. Uh, yeah, I, it, there have been their email. How to yes. Portal. Yes. How to uh, turn the sound on, on their phone. Um, yes. But, or even to hold the camera over their eye if they if they yeah. don't know where the camera is. I've gotten a lot of nose hairs, uh, good shots of people up people's nostrils that have been very yeah. unpleasant. Oh, right. <laughs> but I always say this story, and I'm just so proud of this story. I taught a 95, I think, plus year old how to use her smartphone. And that is something that I will forever pat myself on the back <laughs> for because that was like... That was probably half the treatment was teaching her how to use her phone. But then once we got her comfortable with her phone, it was a breeze after that. So, yeah, I mean, so with, with that being said, obviously, there are limitations to who is appropriate for vestibular telehealth, you know, um, and being able to have the correct equipment to be able to get through a vestibular telehealth. You know, this is where this episode is to kind of broaden people's minds and open them up to the idea of telehealth, not to say that, you know, this is the way that we should be doing things and that, you know, we can we can be just as good, you know, via telehealth as we can be in the clinic. Obviously, there are some some things that are, are limitations to that. So, you know, technology being one, but there's there's a couple other ones. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, let's say let's say this patient knows that he or she has blood pressure issues. I'm probably not going to want to see this patient via telehealth where I can't monitor a lot throughout the session how their vitals are. Or let's say this patient has a cognitive impairment, can't follow direction, or um, doesn't respond well to verbal cues, needs more tactile cues. This is not a patient I'm going to see via telehealth. Or let's say I'm seeing a patient direct access and I'm noticing some... Uh, you know, abnormal neuroscience, let's say. This is not a patient I'm going to continue to just see direct access via telehealth. I'm going to refer this patient to make sure that everything checks out, right? So you're always using your clinical judgment. And I actually prefer to speak to every patient that schedules first uh, as the treating therapist, because I want to know that I would rather spend five, 10 minutes on the phone with a patient and make sure that we're a good fit rather than block out an hour of my schedule and realize this eval is not going to work. So I always talk to my patients first, at least I try to, um, to make sure that they understand telehealth, they know how to use a smartphone, make sure they're cognitively intact, they can follow direction. Um, they're on board with telehealth, right? Because I do get some people who schedule through my online portal and and they didn't even realize it was a telehealth appointment <laughs> somehow. I don't know, but I have had that happen. Um, so yeah, I think that, you know, you're going to use your clinical judgment just like you would in person. Again, I always like physical therapy first, telehealth second, nothing about your clinical decision-making changes. It's just the mode of delivery. Yeah. I like that. I mean, that's a very succinct way of putting it. You're still a treating clinician. You're still making the same judgment calls. You're still looking for the same things. It's just, you have to be a little bit more creative. Yeah. Think outside the box. Absolutely. You know, all in all, I think vestibular telehealth is a, a new wave that we really need to explore more, be creative with and find new ways. I know that there are clinicians out there who are sending out little packets for mm -hmm. initial evaluations that include little um, kind of a, a temporary frenzel goggles that they'll have patients use and use with their smartphones. Um, people are getting really good at creating YouTube videos that teach people how to hold their cameras you know, well and get through an evaluation well. There's a lot more YouTube videos like what we, we've been putting out of how to do repositioning maneuvers safely at home. There's all these different ways that we are. An athlete maneuver on YouTube. Please watch the video by Vestibular today. <laughs> Some of those videos are not good videos. This one's a good one. <laughs> and that's why we that's why we made the one for Vestibular today, because even just me as a clinician, I wanted to give some patients a YouTube video to watch at home in case they had recurrences. And I wasn't happy 
with a lot of them out there that didn't explain things well. So it, it's been going very well. We've got a lot of good feedback and a lot of people have, have mentioned that it's helped them a lot. So check out Vestibular Today's uh, Epley Maneuver videos and we've got more to come that include different canals. So we've got those coming, but you know, we've, we've really kind of been dipping our toe into this idea of telehealth. And I think that we didn't really realize it until COVID and this pandemic. So we really should continue to explore. We really need to band together as a vestibular community and continue to help each other get into this realm and figure out ways to help patients more because having more access, having the ability to help more people, I think is, is really, really important. And I think that you caught on to that years ago and you are now telling us all, I told you so. So I appreciate you talking about everything today that kind of gives us a little idea of what we really should be thinking about this, you know, the challenges, but also the benefits and how this is possible um, without giving away any trade secrets. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this, this is great. I, I don't think of it as a, I told you so necessarily, <laughs> but it is nice to not be looked at like such a crazy person anymore. And now people are like, okay, well, I guess Abby was doing something <laughs> okay or yeah. doable feasible uh so that part has been nice but yeah i'm a, i'm an admitted convert I'll, I'll admit when i didn't i didn't know you and you were bringing up this idea of vestibular telehealth i'm like no you can't do that you covered that well because i did not get that right when i was talking to you <laughs> well come on how many vestibular therapists do you get to chit chat with on randomly on a daily basis you don't burn bridges <laughs> Oh, that's right. That's right. You hold on to us for dear life. Yes, absolutely. Well, another aspect of the virtual world that we should probably mention is the uh, Vestibular Disorders Association virtual conference coming up here soon for Balance Awareness Week. Um, we had alluded to it in a couple of other episodes that um, we talked about in our uh, what. Present, presenters that we were having to come on and talk about different types of various topics geared towards the patient perspective. Mm -hmm. So um, this is the week of September 14th to the 18th. And a couple of the different presentations that we have going on, I think would be really, really useful for people to tune into. So we had already mentioned Kim Bell, who is Dr. Kim Bell, who is um, talking about navigating the healthcare system as a dizzy patient, which looks like it's going to be a really great, a really great presentation. Everyone should tune in for that. And we also have a UK version of that presentation because our healthcare systems are so different. So um, the same day around the same time, anybody in the UK who wants to learn about how to navigate the healthcare system um, as a dizzy patient, you know, they can tune in for that. So we've got a little bit of variety there. But then we're also talking about the psychological impacts of vestibular disorders, which are actually some of your old coworkers who you've gotten to work alongside with that brought, brings a lot to the table. Um, they're also getting into vestibular rehabilitation therapy. What do we do for exercises? How do we get patients feeling better? Um, we've got Janine Holmberg, Dr. Janine Holmberg, talking about persistent postural perceptual dizziness, which is a new and up-and-coming disorder that has been um, more frequently diagnosed but not quite understood by our patient population. Um, and then on the last day, we have complementary and alternative medicine. Um, that's Dr. Kathleen Strauss, who's going to be talking about that. And she's getting into things that you can do to help improve your quality of life and improve symptoms that kind of deviate away from the traditional therapy path. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of each of those presentations, those are about an hour, you get to listen to the, the clinician or presenter talk about their topic. They'll be live to answer some live Q&A. But then for an entire hour after that presentation, you'll hear from actual patients who have been experiencing these types of issues that correlate with the topic that day. So you'll want to stick around. You'll want to check this out. Um, it's free to the public if you watch within 24 hours of the presentation being given. You can watch live and ask questions right to the presenter about their topic and their research. And then you can also pay a fee later, a small fee later on to access all of that content material afterwards. Abby and I are very excited to be moderators for this. Um, we we are very pumped to be there for it and celebrating Balance Awareness Week. It's kind of like our Christmas for us. Yeah, is this how you know you're a vestibular holic? Probably. Probably. <laughs> this is like vacation coming up. Yeah, I have to mention, you know, my birthday always falls on Balance Awareness Week every single year. So I have to say it's very fitting and very exciting. And this year having a conference during Balance Awareness Week, I think is just even more over the top. Can so 
us when your birthday is so we can just make a note right now. Oh, do I have to? It's September 16th. <laughs> <laughs> right smack dab in the middle of the week this year. So it'll be fun. We get to celebrate and we deck the clinic out with uh, with flamingos and just get to ham it up all week. So um, please tune in, whether you're a patient, whether you're a clinician, there's a lot to be learned from this. Um, Abby and I have been working with each of the presenters on their presentations that we've gotten to view them and kind of work with them on, on shaping this um, to be a, a great thing. So we know there's a lot of good content coming up. And then we'll also be live streaming at the end of each presentation that um, afternoon or night to kind of give you a quick synopsis of what we learned that day, what was interesting how it might pertain to our patient population. So please, please, please tune in. Balance Awareness Week. You can find out more information at www.vestibular.org. You'll find the, just follow the flamingos. They're, they're everywhere. Flamingos, yes. yes. And then also I want to mention, um, you know, when it comes to telehealth, if you are a patient tuning in and you're having vestibular symptoms and you're struggling to find a vestibular therapist in your, your area, or you can't commute, or whatever the reason may be, you prefer telehealth, who knows? Make sure you also check out Balancing Act Rehab. Uh, that's where you'll find Danny and I. We will be your therapist. So please, please don't hesitate to reach out. Any questions you have, or if we can help in any way, we'll be happy to. Well, thank you for tuning in for yet another episode of Talk Dizzy to Me. We really appreciate you guys listening along. And we're actually really excited that we've got a lot of people listening and engaging and giving us some good feedback. So if there's anything that you want to hear that we haven't covered or you want us to cover in the near future, please um, go to vestibular.today, fill out the form on the homepage. We've got some great guests coming up um, to cover some really cool topics. So please stay tuned. And we, we really appreciate you guys. Thank you, guys. If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos, blogs, continuing education classes, and resources including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and BPMBV treatment charts. Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.